0: Welcome to Dig Life
1: Deep with John Aiden Byrne. The New York Times number one best-selling author, Martin Dugard's latest book, Taking Berlin, the bloody race to defeat the Third Reich, is out for Christmas. Taking Berlin is the second installment in his series that covers the events of World War II and follows on his successful Taking Paris, the epic battle for the City of Lights. Dugard is co-author on over 10 best-selling Killing Books with political commentator Bill O'Reilly. And Martin Dugard is my guest coming up. Well, you know,
2: going in, I thought that this would be a perfect sequel to Taking Paris. You know, we would pick up August 26th, 1944. Uh, Paris has been liberated. but and then I got stuck. And sometimes as a writer, the the hard part about writing a, a bigger piece, like a book, you know, like anything, like writing anything, but with a book, it, it's more problematic. You need to know where to get into the story. If you come in too late, you've lo- left out a lot of context, a lot of backstory. If you get in too soon, um, too early, you got a lot of you know, fluff, a lot of you know time to cover
1: well i hope you're all well and gearing up for the holidays and christmas really an exciting time of the year for us all uh before we get to my really engrossing interview on this episode with martin dugard he's the best selling author on the killing series with political commentator bill o'reilly and they also have a, a new book out Killing the legends. We'll have more about that on this episode with Martin. Now, before we get to all of that, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 segment with Workforce Trends Expert Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, drug abuse has always been a problem, at least in recent decades, in the workplace. It's a terrible plague in many ways.
3: Um, what's going on right now? John. People are testing positive for drug use, uh, especially in the manufacturing sector, uh, at a much higher rate. There was just a a study done by Quest Diagnostics, uh, and they found that from 2020 to 2021, during the heat of the pandemic, uh, there was an increase, which included quite a number of drugs, was an increase of positivity rates by 4.5%. Wow. Now, that's significant. Except when you look at the numbers from 2017 to 2021, it increased 28.6%. So one, one of the challenges that's happening in workplaces now is uh, out of all these drug users, uh, almost 70% uh, are employed and they're active in the workplace. One third of all employees are aware of illegal sale of drugs in their workplace Ten uh, percent, ten to twenty percent of workers who die at work have a positive result when tested, and this all gets a lot more complicated because of some of the the types of drug use, and specifically marijuana. So, what what the study found was that the larger sh- driver of this was due to marijuana. Thirty seven states now have uh, have approved medical marijuana use. More states. Are legalizing recreational use, but the federal and state laws differ. And it also doesn't mean just because it's okay or it's not a criminal act to use that it's safe to use, especially in construction and some manufacturing jobs, maybe healthcare. Uh, So for employees, this creates a real dilemma. On the one hand, is it better to employ a worker who might smoke a little weed or or just you just turn a, a blind eye to it? Or Do you have to put policies and safety first, even if the risk is small, which then means uh, there's going to be a lot of people who are excluded from working and the jobs are open more. And maybe you have to turn down business and customers and and time delays and and all the things that are going on. So one of the questions that is out there, and I don't have an easy solution and uh, many people don't, but one of the problems out there is they companies haven't figured out how to determine impairment in the workplace when it comes to marijuana uh, as opposed to alcohol? Uh, there's not some really good test. You can drug test to say that it's in the system, but how much is, is an employee impaired? So this is just more one more case that we talk about all the time in a law getting ahead of the science. Or as I like to say, living in future shock and never normal. The lines between science fiction and reality are pretty blurry. Thank
1: you, Ira Wolf. Uh, Let me just add that I think the marijuana policies in America have been a total disaster. That's my personal opinion. But your findings and what you discussed there are really interesting. We'll have you back next week, Ira. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of
0: uncommon and everyday things and interesting people.
1: My guest on this episode is the number one New York Times best-selling author Martin Dugard, telling us about his latest book, Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich, and it's out for Christmas and on the stands. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Martin Dugard, welcome back to my show. I had you on It's got to be about a year ago now, um, when we were talking about your brilliant Taking Paris. And we're going to talk in a moment about your latest um, book, uh, Taking Berlin. It's the second in your World War II series. And it's sort of the pace of writing and the narrative and the style, the format, imitates on some level um, the killing series, which you've done with uh, Bill O'Reilly for so many years and had, enormous success with it. But I kind of want to start somewhere um, else. I just want to get your backstory, as it were. And through our conversations and my own research and just learning more about you, I'm amazed and um, dumbfounded just about your overall character, your energy, your passion, um, your life as an American, as a dad, and uh, in your community, because uh, you have this big passion for track and field. And some of your writings took you in that direction. So you have this just amazing success and extraordinary energy. You're a celebrity in your own right. And yet you strike me as being this humble individual who doesn't really seek out the limelight. And you have your feet planted in your community. I guess it's in Southern California. So I'm impressed. Just a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be Martin Dugard this successful writer
2: it, it all happened when i um first got out of college and i got a excuse me got a a, a really crappy corporate job and i would come home every day and tell my wife um, how much i hated my job i was working as a uh, was it procurement i was working in a cubicle for some really big co- company um and my wife told me to if i didn't like it to do something different so i began writing on the side very small articles for you know running in triathlon magazines um those led to bigger freelance articles, um, you know, You know, Sports Illustrated, Esquire, GQ. And at some point, I had to choose between the corporate world and the writing world. And um, so, you know, I chose writing. And it's been, uh, gosh, I left the corporate world 1994, and actually February 24th, 1994, not that I remember the date. Um, and it was, a, it was a watershed moment in my life. But at the time, my wife told me, if, you know, if I was going to be a full-time writer, I had to be all in. I wasn't, you know, she said, don't I want to see you re- reading one ads. I don't want to see you talking about some other career. If you want to make it as a writer, make it as a writer. And, you know, it's, you know, peaks and valleys, you know, it's a, uh, so it's a very, very, you got a hustle type profession. And I, you know, as my kids got older, I've got three sons as they get older. Uh, the realities of traveling three months out of the year to do magazine articles wasn't as appealing. So I made the leap into books and, Gosh, that was you know 1997, 1998 and then I did a number of books, and then I, you know, began writing the Killing series with Bill back in about two thousand and nine, um, and you know somewhere along the line I wanted to get back to doing what I do, you know, and I I had had some fun stuff before the Bill stuff, you know, I covered the Tour de France for ten years, um, I wrote books about several great historical figures that took me around the world, but. Uh, you know this taking series taking paris taking berlin and you know the upcoming taking london which i'm working on right now is a is a fun trilogy it's nice to be writing in my own voice again um like you said i i you know my name is out there but i really like just the solitude and the silence of sitting here in my little office writing books and um and i like the quiet and uh, and i just like to write the marketing part of it is not my forte so you know like i said i've got a nice little town I, at the end of the day i go over and, and coach cross country and track at the local high school and it's a good life
1: and and you had a success with a book to be a runner that's kind of a an, sort of an industry standard in, among some groups
2: yeah yeah thanks for that 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 came out of um i was actually working on a very unfulfilling project i was ghostwriting a book for for somebody and um i was just really bored with it so i you know to Inspire myself every day. I challenged myself to write 30 essays about running um, in one month. So, you know, one a day, start the, start the day with, with 1,500 words about running. And then when I got to the end of it, you know, my agent and I had already had an agreement that I would never, ever, ever pitch a book about running. When I got to the end of it, I spent a couple months polishing it up. I printed the whole thing out, wrapped a red ribbon around it, and uh, put it in a FedEx envelope and sent it to my agent and said, if you like this, Let's take it out to see if we can sell it. If you don't like it, just throw it in the trash. and we will act like it never happened. So uh, he liked it. Just quickly, you were in the corporate world, communications? Um, a little bit. I would start in procurement. I, won't, I oh, went over you to- You say
1: procurement, so that's a, a little yeah. bit different.
2: Yeah, but I went over to what is called cost and scheduling, which is basically data entry. <laughs> and then um, you know, I kind of found that, like, boy, you know, I've got a college degree and I'm doing data entry on spreadsheets, you know, all day long. And then I moved into marketing, which was nice. I got to wear a suit and, you know, talk to the executives and be in these big meetings. But it was just never it was just never me. And you know, it was just, it wasn't yeah. right. And, you know, by the way, while I was working, I wrote at, you know, in my corporate job. So every time I got a task finished and I had nothing else to do, I'd open up a file and you know write a story. So that's, you know, I, I should probably pay them back all the salary I made during those years.
1: <laughs> um well a lot of people in journalism even in in big jobs in journalism um sometimes or a lot of them make that leap over to the corporate side for more money typically um they get an offer they can't refuse so to speak but you know it's always laughingly referred to as going to the dark side that <laughs> they're in the job but they're not I mean there are plenty of exceptions some people probably love corporate communications they you know i mean they see it as a science and there's certain aspects of it, are, I presume, are stimulating, but a lot of them are not happy. In in their hearts and soul, they want to be that writer they went to school to be or they felt that longing for as a, a kid.
2: Yeah, no, I can understand and I can... I can, I can see, you know, I mean, I'm a freelance writer, I, you know, and I've been doing this for a long time. And at the end of the day, there's still a mortgage to be paid and there, you know, there's a retirement plan to fund and I can see why people would opt for, you know, making a few extra bucks. Um, you know, in, in my case, I'm, I'm a little bit more introverted, excuse me, you know, need some more coffee. Um, but I <laughs> well, can have some from my coffee shop. I behind see, me yeah, here. I, won't, I won't make trouble. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I don't like the the petty posturing and the politics and, and, you know, and I don't like writing something and have a committee, you know, have to go through it and scrutinize it and sign off on it, especially when they're not writers, you know, and they don't really understand the process of the content. You know, at that point, I would have been a very bad employee if I'd opted for corporate communications because, um, you know, I'm, I'm fussy. I love the written word. I love to... I love to make paragraphs come to life. I I like, I like perfect punctuation, all those little things that runners uh, writers geek out on. Um, and I, you know, it would be a little bit of an affront to have somebody, you know, take a lovely sentence that really has meaning and put some kind of corporate, you know, maxim in there instead that really just doesn't, you know, make your heart sore. That's that's kind of the purest in me.
1: Uh, Communications has so many facets. We have the corporate communications interacting with the world of media and the media and reporters taking those press releases and all um, that information from press conferences and trying to make sense of it and weigh it up. So you kind of wonder sometimes what kind of a balance what does the public actually hear do they get the real picture sometimes of what's going on in the in the wider world about wars and famines and uh, the economy and everything it's a very complex picture
2: you know i can understand that you know even when i was doing you know journalism mostly sports journalism not hard news um when you dealt with big corporations like for instance ASO the, the company that owns the Tour de France there was always an expectation that you you kind of followed the message and, we, and you know and and you didn't offend the wrong people and I understand that there's there's a need for that I'm, I'm not being naive I just I just think it's much more fun to you know to create you know to to sit down with a story that people think they know you know like with taking Berlin you know and and kind of find a way to tell it in a new way that is going to make the reader turn the pages and, and make them, um, you know, want to know more about the characters, maybe do, you know, after they read the book, go want and do some more research on their own.
1: That's so true. And I've learned through my years in journalism and so on, I was naive enough to be, once believe that, you know, why do all these big companies themselves have researchers and staff and employ these outside agencies to do additional research to what is available in the public domain? And, it it struck me as that you really have to uh, dig deep which kind of takes us uh, to your uh, latest work uh, taking berlin because you dug deep and you you raised up you brought a lot of information to light that maybe we didn't previously know and um just going to read uh, this here. Um, you previously co-authored over 10 best-selling killing books with political commentator Bill O'Reilly, who you mentioned earlier, and similar to Taking Paris and the Killing series with Bill, over I think 10 or 11 million sales so far. Um, Taking Berlin is a work of historical non-fiction and focused on offence and vigors from a specific era the taking books are based on World War II, obviously, and it opens in the summer of 1944, overlapping some of the time frame of your taking Paris before the liberation of Paris. So sort of give us a brief overview of it, and we'll just talk about the style of it and how you approached each chapter.
2: Well, you know, going in, I thought that this would be a perfect sequel to taking Paris. You know, we would pick up... August 26th, 1944, uh, Paris has been liberated, you know, and from that point, we would go straight on to Berlin, and, you know, the last nine months of the war, and and I wrote that chapter about, you know, the the Americans marching into Paris after it's been liberated, and literally marching straight through Paris, out the other side, and and beginning the, the campaign towards Berlin, but, and then I got stuck, and sometimes as a writer, the The hard part about writing a a bigger piece, like a book, you know, like anything, like writing anything, but with a book, it's more problematic. You need to know where to get into the story. If you come in too late, you've left out a lot of context, a lot of backstory. If you get in too soon, um, too early, you've got a lot of, you know, fluff, a lot of, you know, time to cover before you get to the meat of the story, which is a problem I'm having with (laughs) taking London right now. But uh, that's another, that's another thing. Uh, so, but I realized with taking Berlin, what I needed to do was not start at August 20, August 26. I needed to go back all the way to to D Day and even the, the run up to D Day because the D Day really marks that the Allied advance on Berlin. And so, which, you know, June 6, 1944. So I opened on May 15th, 1944, when the Allies, all the top Allied generals and admirals meet in London with Winston Churchill, with, you know, with the King of England, with, with, you know, General Bernard Montgomery, you know, the top British Field Marshal, and they're going to unveil the plans for D-Day. And once I got there, then, you know, I spent the whole first section of the book explaining, you know, introducing all the characters. Instead of just telling the story of D-Day, which is a book unto itself, because there's so many different moving parts, I chose to focus on four main characters who will be woven in through the rest of the story, you know, Patton, James Gavin, Norman Coda, actually five, um, Martha Gellhorn and General James Gavin. So all those people form the, the backbone of the rest of the story. And so in, in, in setting them up and telling their story you know, what happened to them on D-Day and then showing the advance of the American Third Army, you know, towards Paris, that first chapter I wrote about Paris on August 26, 1944 chapter Became, it went mean, from chapter one to chapter 14. You know, I just, all these other stories needed to be told to set up the rest of the story. And only then could I, once all that was in place, then we could focus on that final push across the Rhine into Berlin.
1: Um, what I like about it is um, you write it in the uh, present tense, correct? That's your style. And each chapter has a timestamp and a kind of a political, uh, not a political, well, maybe a political point of view, but a viewpoint, let's say, and the characters become real and vivid. And there's just, you feel you're in, you know, in the middle yeah. of this action, but we're not going to pick up a regular history book and read about characters like Martha Gellhorn. And you get into this and uncover some um sparkling detail. And uh, she was a war correspondent.
2: Yeah, you know, and I, I thought it would be interesting. I mean, like when taking Paris, we had a woman named Virginia Hall, who's a, a a spy, American-born spy, um, worked for the British, had one leg. And I, I found the response to the book was people really liked that a the stories are more personal instead of, you know, broader, you mm. know, macro type thing. But also people found it unusual to have a woman in the story. And I I didn't, when I did taking Berlin, I didn't originally mean to have Gellhorn in the story although I was looking for a woman um but you know Gellhorn's claim to fame was she's also she was Ernest Hemingway's third wife mm. and I had wanted to put Hemingway in the book he was going to be one of the top five characters oh and then I found out that he didn't really do a lot you know it's like he I couldn't tell his story I mean he was there at D-Day but he wasn't there through the rest you know the next nine months he was he was doing other things. He kind of left the, the scene. And, and I kind of linked up with the idea of Gallahorn just because I read some of her journalism. And I, then I read about her stowing away on a hospital ship on D-Day so she could actually help with the wounded and see the story for herself. And so, you know, she does. it's, it's weird to have a World War II book where, you know, with five balanced characters, one of them is a female war correspondent. But her point of view and her she was at so many pivotal places, she was at D-Day, she was at Market Garden, she was down in Italy, she was she flew in a on a night flight with a bomber crew over Germany. I just love that perspective. You know, at the end, she's at Dachau when Dachau is liberated. I mean, all these these things that we know happened, but to have an individual express what it felt like in her own words, uh, I thought was fascinating.
1: Ernest Hemingway himself had also been a war correspondent um, in his career.
2: Yeah, it was kind of, um, it's it's weird when you look at Hemingway's career, like starting off he was an ambulance driver in World War I and belatedly, kind of you begin writing about World War One just as a, almost as a memoir. And then when he's, when he gets 1944, it's a much older Ernest Hemingway, you know, not an 18-year-old, but all of a sudden a 45-year-old in 1944, who... Um, you know he's he's famous. He's a little bit grizzled. He drinks too much. Um, if you read his journals, he's really fixated on his um, because he, he's he's having issues. Um, and on top of that, he's fighting with his wife and he's having an affair with a fourth woman. So is he's a very you know. Here's the thing: I could have put Hemingway in there. I'm a big Hemingway fan, but. He would have been a distraction because his focus during that point in the war, you know, late 1944, Battle of Bulge time, he was there, but he was much more focused on, you know, finding a new mate, uh, divorcing his third wife, um, you know, kind of running rabble rousing with with generals and doing fun things. But it it was more like he he was more interested in drinking than he was in writing. He's a
1: complex character, and we've all read his novels and so on. Part of me feels that he liked attention and he liked fame. Um, he was larger, larger than life character.
2: Oh, he was! No you know, doubt about it. Um, I think, to his detriment, I, I think that it's it's you know that was a time when when the writer a celebrity was much more real than it is today i mean you know right now when you think of a celebrity writer you maybe think of i don't know james patterson or stephen yeah. king or someone Rushdie, but you know back then you, you know him and fitzgerald you had all these other characters and they were they were as famous as movie stars they were that was a big deal and he he liked that celebrity he liked that fame he liked the fact that people you know he liked the fact that he was a little bit notorious and um I really don't think that since Hunter S. Thompson died that we've had a, of a writer who really capitalized as much on, on his, his great writing skills as well as his lifestyle to, to, to affect a celebrity. I mean, I mean, you know, if my, my big thing is you know, going, going to the local pub and having a couple of beers at the end of the day, I think that that's much more what your modern writer is like. No one's gonna, nothing flashy about that. Nothing, um, that makes you know you don't get a bad boy reputation doing that so
1: yeah 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 and and uh, even in the world of journalism tabloid journalism all the big columnists who were big celebrities in their day they were on they were just um consumed people's life they were fascinated by them amazing
2: oh yeah you know and it's um you know, and it, 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 when you think about it, we, we've come a long way. All of a sudden, you know, you're you're much more famous if you've got a YouTube channel than if you write a great book. It's it's funny how that works. I can't I can't think of it. Even James Patterson, you know, I know Jim really well, but and he he's on Twitter. He's he you know he does all the social media stuff, but he doesn't have the he, even though he sells millions of books. I think the statistic is like of every twenty eight to thirty books sold in English language, one is a James Patterson book, but. He still doesn't have the, the fame and notoriety as most TikTok stars. It's a different era.
1: I you write with James Patterson, too, we shouldn't mention here?
2: Yeah, I did. we did one book together. And, you know, the interesting thing about that book, you know, as pertains to what we're talking about now is um, it was the murder of King Tut. And so we were trying to and he came to me and he said, I'd like to tell this story in a very fast moving way. And he was suggesting like, you know, let's keep the chapters brief, you know, cliffhanger endings, you know, a big cinematic opening chapter and, you know, research all the details, make sure you know, no detail is too small. And um, at the, at the time I didn't get it, I think that was 2005 or 2006. I just, I didn't understand how you could tell the history with short chapters and in, in kind of a page turning style. I thought history had to be slow and plotting. And in writing that book, um, you know, and Jim kept challenging me, you know, tighten things up, make it move faster. I found that it was a much more fun way to write. And also, I thought you, you could put all the same details in there. But if you focused on telling the story more than telling, you know, dry, dusty, boring history, it was a lot more fun to read, too. And and that that was the style I later used when we began doing the Killing series. You know, Bill kind of left me alone for most of the first book to kind of come up with the voice and the style of it. And that's where I dropped in that first person, you are there feeling up, you know, put in the timestamp to, to use as a guide, because if you have that chronic chronology at this, the start of every chapter, even if you rotate characters in and out, the reader can follow it because they're following the timeline. So they'll, they'll, they'll know that, okay, we're going to lose this character for a couple of chapters, but if we follow the timeline, we know this character is going to pop up again, you know, four, five, six chapters down the road. And so it was that that James Patterson training that that led into the style we used on the Killing Books. And then, you know, Bill and I even tightened that structure further. And then when I began doing the Taking series, I used all that, the Patterson, the O'Reilly. And then I I breathed just a little bit more of me into it. Uh, Bill's not, like every time I put something romantic into one of the O'Reilly books or something um, kind of very poetic, Bill would say, okay, that's wonderful, but we need to take it out. And so in in, in this book, with, with taking Berlin, taking Paris, I, I get the chance to keep them in. And then, but then the responsibility is if you keep moments, those personal moments, the, you know, the interaction between a soldier and his commanding officer, the interaction between, you know, a journalist and a general. If you do that in a way that isn't just telling story history, you have a responsibility to to not let it distract from the the, the story overall.
1: My guest on this episode is the number one New York Times best-selling author, Martin Dugard, telling us about his latest book, Taking Berlin, the bloody race to defeat the Third Reich. And it's out for Christmas and on the stands. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. So if a reader picks up your book, and I recommend you buy it, uh, Taking Berlin... Um, are the facts as we know them, are they the, the established facts? Do you embellish anything? Do you change? Th- do you take any literary license and say, well, that w- not exactly how it happened, but we're going to put it in because it makes for a great story.
2: <laughs> oh, I, if, <laughs> only, if only that were so. No, um, no, that's the thing is like, once you, it goes back to the responsibility to the reader. If, if I'm writing history and I've never written, you know, I've never written fiction in my life. So, um, if I'm writing a history book, it's it's pure nonfiction. And in the facts of the facts, there as much as I would like to um you know embellish or guess um, until I can nail down a fact as being truthful, um, I will not put it in the book. It just can't because once once you get, you know, like I wouldn't say it's like getting caught in a lie, but it, it kind of is. Once the reader catches you in a lie, once the reader realizes that. You put something in there that you made up or you supposed, and that is the biggest error an author can make is the error of supposition. Um, you lose them. All of a sudden, they do- they start doubting everything you're going to put into the book. Let me give you yeah. an example. In the opening, and this is, it sounds petty, but this is, the, this is the focus on detail. In the opening prologue of Taking Berlin, there's a scene where uh, they're, you know, they're having that meeting I spoke of in London. We have all the admirals and generals, and they're going to show them the plans for D-Day in describing the doors at the, the leading into this 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 auditorium um and i i described i think as gothic you know the 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 style of doors, gothic something else and pine and now the word pine you know okay the pine doors not a big deal but at first i thought they were maple and and i was doing some research i actually wrote to the school that that uh where the where the this meeting was held and I was in in what it, what it came around to the doors were not maple, the doors were not oak, which I also thought they might be. but it took me like four months to figure out to nail down the fact that the doors were just very old you know 19th century pine doors that were there. but I almost took any type of a wood description out of the book just because, I didn't. I didn't want to be wrong. You know, you you can't have someone come back to you in six months and go, "Oh, I was there, and those were not pine; those were, you know, mahogany." So, and so, you know, just little those little things. That obsessive that obsessive focus on detail is 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 a very very um, ending part of writing really you know fascinating history, but at the same time, it has to be done because. Like I said, if I start making stuff up, just just kind of guess at the 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 type of wood in those doors, then I'm going to start guessing at all these other things down the line. And you know, just it's that discipline to the truth that um, really makes the research fun.
1: So, which takes us to your research generally. Uh, Unlike um, taking Paris, research for taking Berlin was much different. You had more liberty because we came out of COVID. And you were actually then able to physically travel to see a lot of the places where all this action described in the book
2: unfolded. Yeah, that was that was great because um, when I began writing Taking Paris, I mean literally start putting words on the page. It was early March, I think, twenty twenty. And I had my wife and I were gonna go to London and Paris um on like the second week of March, which is exactly when COVID blew up. So we had, you know, had to cancel that trip. And, you know, thankfully I covered the Tour de France all those years. So I was able to use my notes from all the cities I visited along the way, all the time I'd spent there, to to inform a lot of the descriptions, but most of it was just done online. And it to be that that was necessary, but it it just kind of felt a little bit lazy or I would say half-assed. Uh, because it just wasn't how i usually worked i do like to do a lot of stuff like for instance with taking london i just got to fly in a spitfire which was an amazing sensation but with uh taking berlin uh you know we we were able to go all those places you know dachau berlin um uh, you know operation market guard we 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 actually followed the path of the, of the british second army as they as they they pushed through the the dutch countryside and it went across the bridge at Grove, which the 82nd Airborne held. Went to Nijmegen, which was fascinating because that's where you know a, a group of Americans famously, American Majors famously, you know, paddled across the river into the teeth of very stiff German resistance. You know, half of them dying or drowning. And then, um, you know, and it, it, to, to, go, to go to these places now is super fun. And for instance, the place where those guys put the boats in the water is now a crossfit gym so yeah so, i saw
1: that in yeah in your back yeah, at the end yeah. It, it, extraordinary
2: yeah it's just it's just fun you know and, yeah. and on the way on the way you know we drove from there down to normandy to look at the normandy beaches again and, and for anybody who's planning on going to normandy i highly recommend you go in february mm. instead of june or july when all the tourists are there cuz in february it's wonderful and it's empty yeah but we stopped at, we stopped at dunkirk on the way just to to look at the Dunkirk beaches, which I'd never seen before. And just to get to immerse in all that research to go to all those places and, and know what happened in a specific spot. I mean, when I, when we were at Omaha, I went to the exact spot where, where the, the army Rangers led the troops led by Norman Cota off the beach. And, and now it's, it's a tranquil, little quiet yeah. enclave. And back then it was, barbed wire landmines and explosions and uh you know german snipers on the on the hillside it was just fascinating to go back and be able to see these places and smell the air and describe the scene
1: yeah and did you get a chance to visit the exterminate those terrible extermination camps dachau and all those horrible places
2: yeah you know i've got a, a, went to dachau and i i need to go to Ravensbrück. Simply because I've written about it before, and I'm curious. It was the female camp, north fifty miles north of Berlin. Um, I've never been to Auschwitz, and the thing, and I do want to go. The thing about the death camps is, and I would caution listeners: the same thing, it it stays with you. It kind of burns itself into your soul. Um, And when you read about what happened in certain places, and and you know, like at Dachau, you go into these rooms where people were tortured and people were hung up by their you know their their elbows and people were shot uh, it's 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 impossible to imagine at the same time when you leave you don't just it's not like leaving disneyland where that you leave that experience behind it stays it burns into you it, it stays with you
1: um i remember you saying on the last time i interviewed you you're talking describing paris just prior to the recapture and the liberation if you will of paris and just prior to the second world war how Modern in feel and atmosphere, it was you know, lights on the street, beautiful buildings, a restaurant, a culture, movie houses, and all the trappings of wealth on many levels. And then it was invaded. And, and of course, the whole of Europe or good sections of Europe were, were laid bare by bombs and destruction. It's, it's just amazing to contemplate that how modern man could do that to each other
2: it's um that's something i'm dealing with right now is is the fact that you know winston churchill talked about before world war ii that the biggest difference between world war one and world war two was the was the fact that there have been so many advances in aviation so the biggest threat was not going to be men in the trenches the biggest threat was going to be people able to to use those bombers to bomb other cities so when you know when world war one began the first thing they did was bomb the polish city uh wyelun w-i-e-l-u-n um has no had no military advantage whatsoever it was just a it was just a tiny little village that the burman's germans dive bombed um and then they then they leveled warsaw and the interesting thing is because paris was such a jewel they didn't bomb paris you know there were very few bombs dropped on paris at all but it wasn't carpet bombed like like so many other cities and um but you know but ironically berlin was just destroyed at the end of the war between the russians in you know between bombing and artillery and in soldiers and it was just by the end of the war berlin was just a rubble.
1: um i know all the veterans of the second world war um you know they're up there in years there's still some of them um alive thank god and with us and we honor them as we should and there are people who went through the second world war still alive obviously at different Yeah, there might be um, some uh, ones in very uh, up in their seventies or whatever. But um, did you get a chance to talk to any of those people and get a sense of what they went
2: through—Germans or Allies side, Axis side? You know, I have in the past, but I didn't specifically for this book, just for the reason you are talking about. You know, almost everybody in that group—they called aging out—just basically they're they're at a point where they're they're too they're they're dying. You know, it's it's real simple. You know. my dad's. My dad was a Vietnam War pilot, and he's ninety. So it's it's one of those things that most of the veterans of World War II are are dead or dying. Um, but no, I didn't have a chance to talk to anybody. Um, I've talked to, over the years, talked to talk to other, you know, veterans who have been there, and then they have informed a lot of this, a lot of the, more of the curiosity about the narrative. Like that's, you know, they had great stories, and wouldn't it be great to put those stories on paper. But no, you know, sadly um i didn't i did not interview a single veteran for this book
1: um it's just a great read uh taking berlin your latest Um is there anything you learned from your research and putting the words to paper anything you came away with and says just blew your mind that you kind of hadn't realized any eureka
2: moment <laughs> <laughs> well there's a, there's a lot but one in particular it's, it's really off color but um I, there is I found that there was a need for I think it beats beats within us all. You know, Winston Churchill, George Patton, Robert Boy Browning, three, you know, two generals and a prime minister, the first thing they did was when they set foot on German soil was was to urinate on the soil. Oh. And, and I and it's such a primal thing, but and they, you know, two out of three did it with photographers standing there. And they were completely unembarrassed to do it. And you, know, you, learn, you, learn, you learn a lot with with any book, you know. You learn, you learn tons. You learn about obscure battles. You learn about obscure acts of heroism. But, but the the primal need to literally take a leak on German soil, I, I found it's like, where does that come from? I found it very very comical.
1: Yeah, and the other thing you do in the book is you describe the ordinariness, if you will, of some of these characters, even though they were high level and famous international figures they had egos and they had troubles and griefs and emotional issues just like the rest of us
2: you know um about 15 years ago i was going into a a meeting i was pitching a a book i did to a really really powerful guy you know big, really high up in the entertainment world and um i was with a, a buddy of mine who who was also representing a project of his own and he, he asked me why I was so nervous. And I said, well, you know, this guy's done this and this and this. You know, he's really powerful. And my friend said something I've ne- never forgotten. He goes, Marty, he's just a guy. And and when you when you break it down like that, when you take any male or female, no matter how wealthy or powerful or whatever, and you just say at, at the end of the day, they're just a human being. They, they do all the same stuff every day that we all do. They have the same doubts and fears and hopes. Um, it makes it easier to approach a character. So you know, you, you take Patton, for instance. You know this, you know this mercurial general. He had, you know, just a genius on the battlefield, but he was also, you know, the ultimate authority figure for a lot of the soldiers during, during World War II. Um, if you read his journals, though, he, I mean, he has moments of sadness and depression. You know, he misses his wife. He's furious at moments, and when you read that, you don't feel like you're reading the words of some imperial general who has you know, all consuming power, you feel like they're reading the words of just a guy who's trying to figure out how to get through the next obstacle and make great things happen. And once you do that, it really makes it easier to write about them because you stop putting them up on a pedestal and you bring them down right where they should be.
1: I heard somebody once say, never meet your heroes because it will change your entire perception of them. You know, we all have these heroes in our life and idols, I guess, on some level. You meet them, you realize how ordinary they are when you get to know them.
2: You know, um, it's funny, story. I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I have been for 40 years, been to hundreds of concerts. And he did a book tour a few years ago where if you came and bought a book and he he appeared at different places around the country, you could get a picture taken with Bruce. And I thought, man, that's really cool. I'm going to drive to L.A. I'm going to do that. And at some point I thought, you know, I don't I don't want that. You know, he. He might say something that might rub me the wrong way, you know. Something might happen that might take away this connection we've had through his music all over the years. Like you said, I just at the end of the day, I just thought, let's, you know, let's let's make the connection through the music instead of getting a picture taken together.
1: So, taking Berlin is your latest, and you have another book in the works. We'll talk about that real quickly in a moment. Um, how long did, you, did it take you to write this book?
2: Um, about seven months.
1: Seven months know. and constant, it's, it's intense, right? It's an intense process.
2: It's a very intense process. In the, in the case of Taking Berlin, um, Bill and I were finishing up the Killing the Legends, which was the, the last Killing book. It, they overlapped for a bit, so I had moments where I would, I would write 2,000 words of Taking Berlin. I would take a little break, come back and write 1,000 words of Taking the Legends, and then I'd go coach in the afternoon and that was like a six week overlap and that was horrible (laughs) so but but like i said but you know the funny thing is i think just that that focus because you know the the quality of both books could not suffer despite the fact that i was doing two at the same time and i think that that intense focus actually informed the narrative because i i find looking at taking berlin it's it's a much more detailed much more taught much more um I think it's a better book than taking paris and i love taking paris but i feel like berlin is better because i just had this hyper focus with it
1: well i have a copy here beside me and i i'm delighted i've had a chance to 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 read it um you mentioned actually you were coaching you were working on these two projects and you were coaching that's why i'm saying at the beginning you're an energetic and i you are my hero maybe we should never meet in person (laughs) (laughs) no anytime let's let's get get together (laughs) And speaking of Bill O'Reilly and your collaborations, so Killing the Legends is the latest. He was on radio just before we um, started this recording. And that's an, a good read because um, we won't get into it. We don't have enough time. But it talks about Muhammad Ali, Elvis Presley, and John Lennon. And I learned from it that John Lennon, according to Bill on the radio, was a heroin addict by 1967.
2: Yeah, he, he picked up a little bit of a heroin problem. He was not a junkie you know, we always think of people, you know, injecting and then falling asleep. He he started heroin, which is a little bit different. And, uh, he, you know, if you kind of go around poker on the internet, it's not exactly a secret, but, you know, and because his former dealer is, is you know, we, could, we can mention him by name, but uh, it's a little bit of a surprise because for the, for the Beatles, you know, for all the all the the talk you would hear you know if you go back through the history about you know smoking marijuana and, and all the, the enlightenment that hallucinogenics brought forth um to the Beatles uh taking hair was kind of <clears throat> crossing a line. It was it was like you were saying going over to the dark side. It was it was kind of like one one drug that you just didn't do. So you know John never really you know became one of those people who who was a daily user, but at the same time he did partake.
1: Great read. And, and, and Ali, and then um, we have Elvis. So, you know, just sort of interesting depth of information. Taking Berlin is the latest, and then you're working on, um, I guess, Sequel, or Taking London is the next stop. And when should will we expect that out on the bookshelves, Martin?
2: Um, I'm hoping this time next year. They're talking about pushing it until 2024, but, I mean, I'm going to be done in just a, about three or four weeks, so I hate to have it languish that long. but We'll we'll see, but it again you know, and you know, I wanted to, and you know, I instead of telling, <laughs> I should have told the whole story of the war. You know, taking London should have come first. Then we should have done taking Paris, then taking Berlin. That's mm. chronologically. But we're kind of messing up the chronology because, and and here's why: there was something that at the end of taking Berlin, um, Churchill does that epic speech in Fulton, Missouri, where the, it's called the Iron Curtain speech, where he talks about you know the the soviet threat and the fact that the soviet union is putting an iron curtain across europe that is dividing the world dividing our ideology and setting the setting the stakes for the next great war and but he says you know before this war before world war 2 i i predicted it and nobody would listen to me so he said you know listen listen to me now and so went back to all the stuff Churchill had said in the years leading up to World War II you know beginning in the early 1930s he warned the world about Hitler he warned the world about the Nazi threat in a time when everybody thought the Nazis were nice guys mm. the Nazis were kind of in fashion in the early 1930s because everybody favored the Nazis over the communists yeah uh, and then you know Hitler was kind of exiled he became a Jeremiah kind of this voice crying in the wilderness trying to warn people about World War II so when it finally happened you know, it was like prophecy was and I wanted to tell that story a little bit just because I didn't know that part of the story very well. And I wanted to spend some time with it. And it's it's been a great learning experience to go back. And then, of course, it's you got to put, you know, put the philosophy in there, but then you got to find the action. So, you know, we we get to know the Spitfire pilots we get to know some of the some of the, the atrocities the Germans are committing with those bombings we talked about. So and then that puts us into the Battle of Britain.
1: We've a lot to look forward to, and I'm going to have you back when you um, when we, when that's released. Taking London and any other works you put out there, and in the meantime, I'm sure you'll have time out to relax, enjoy Christmas holidays, and do all the celebrations because I'm sure you would appreciate. Although you do this well, we're in the middle of winter now, so there's no field and track, right? Or maybe you go indoors.
2: So we just got done with cross country last Saturday. I'm going to take five weeks. I give the kids five weeks between seasons to kind of get their minds together their bodies rest. We'll start track again on January 4th. Okay. And so, but in the meantime, my, my wife and I are going to, to London next week. I can do a little bit more research. We're going to spend a week there. And, you know, London at Christmas time is, is wonderful. And then um, I'll write, I'll write while I'm there and you know, put some of the, the new information into the book. And then uh, I, I write five days a week, even during the holidays. It's just, it's kind of like breathing. I mean, if it's something that you do, you do it every day, and um, and I, I love it. I mean, it's like, why wouldn't I go? My office is in my garage, so all I do is I walk 30 steps, and, and I'm sitting in front of my computer, so it's great.
1: Oh, that's great. Marty Dugard, uh, thank you for being on my show. Good luck with your next book, and enjoy the visit to London, and we'll catch up again soon.
2: Yeah, I look forward to it. This has been fantastic.
0: You were listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email com. at gmail.com. That's burndesk B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.